Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Thank you, J.B. Have a great weekend. I am Chris Cuomo. Welcome to Primetime. Was the president framed by his own people? That's what some of his defenders seem to be selling. Some of his best players may be in the crosshairs. And we have more proof the Ukraine deal was more than a phone call. Word of a similar ask to the last Ukrainian president. And we know who's said to have done the asking. So what do you say? Let's get after it. Here's what we know. Two White House officials, Fiona Hill and Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, both implicated acting chief of staff Mick Mulvaney in their newly released testimonies as the coordinator of the quid pro quo or the attempted bribe or whatever you want to call the deal. Mulvaney was a no-show on the Hill today defying a House subpoena. But he is increasingly present in a new notion that he or others did this Ukraine thing without the president's knowledge. We're going to test that. And we learned today of another very similar shakedown attempt stretching back to the last Ukrainian administration. This one allegedly orchestrated by the arrested associates of Rudy Giuliani. The Wall Street Journal reports Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman unsuccessfully tried to get then-Ukrainian President Poroshenko to announce an investigation into the Bidens in return for a state visit here. So, if the idea that this is all about one call this past July were not absurd enough already, this new information should put that idea to rest, at least for the reasonable. And the top U.S. diplomat in Ukraine, Bill Taylor, testified Ukraine President Zelensky eventually did agree to make a public statement about investigating the Bidens, and he was going to do so in an interview with CNN. Who? Our very own Fareed Zakaria in September. But then the aid money was released. The interview was called off. Fareed joins us now with the rest of the story. Good to see you, my friend. Pleasure as always, Chris. Now, obviously, you didn't know what was afoot. But once you learned of the context of what was going on, have you ever heard of anything like this before? Good Lord, no. I mean, we were trying to get an interview with Zelensky anyway. I mean, he's a fascinating character, you know, amazing road to victory, then wins the parliamentary election, caught between Russia and the West. So we'd been trying for a while. We had had some encouraging signs. But what I didn't know is just at the time I was in Kiev and I was meeting with him to solidify the interview, this whole other story was unraveling because it was all around the time, September 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, that this is all happening. And it, the aid is stuck, then it gets released. And then, of course, what happens is the whistleblower story starts leaking. And that's when uh, the Ukrainians probably decide, look, we don't need, we, we, A, we don't need to do the interview anymore to announce this investigation into the Bidens because the money has been released. Right. But more importantly, 
we need we don't need to we don't want to get to have anything to do with what is turning into a very big US domestic story but they were totally professional throughout right. uh, but you know as sometimes happens they backed off at the end so Help us understand some of the context of what was going on here, because, of course, Fareed understands world events and geopolitics so well. So the idea that Ukraine, uh, Zelensky and his people were in a panic about this, uh, that they didn't know how to deal with Rudy. They were so afraid of being involved in American politics. Does that square with your understanding of the regime and why? Oh, uh, completely. Chris, the thing you have to remember about Ukraine and the U.S., and so when when Trump says Zelensky says he was not pressured, the core reality here is the asymmetry of power. The U.S. totally dominates this relationship. Zelensky needs, any Ukrainian president, needs the American president's 110% support, not just for the military aid, not just for the political aid, for the diplomatic aid, but because there is a real prospect of a Russian invasion of the rest of Ukraine, in which case Washington becomes your savior. So there's no question that, you know, Zelensky or any Ukrainian president is going to try very hard to do whatever it takes mm. uh, to, to help the uh, American president. He understood, however, because he's a savvy guy. I spent a while with him. He understood, and now I'm guessing, that this would cause problems if he were to, you know, choose a Republican over a Democrat. The testimony says uh, that. Decide to investigate, right, Biden and the Clintons. That would put him in, a, in an awkward position. What right. if Trump didn't win? So he was trying his best to play both sides, to, to, to delay, to punt. And then when it became absolutely clear he couldn't do that anymore, apparently, and I'm reading the reporting, he agreed to right. come on my show and, and he was going to announce it. We had already scheduled the, you know, the, the, the interview was sort of in the works for a while in the sense that we had been trying, we had gotten encouraging noises. But the key thing to remember is Zelensky cannot say anything now, then, before, and he won't two weeks from now, that in any way... Uh, could annoy Donald Trump. He needs the American president. Any Ukrainian president does. Uh, what do you make of the couple of defenses that have popped up to what you know, seems to most to be obvious? The first one is, hey, look, it never happened. So there's no damage. There's no real threat here because they didn't get any dirt on the Bidens and they got the aid. So everything's fine. And the other one is, hey, it may have happened the way you guys say it did, but the president may have known nothing about it. And it was just as the people around him. What do you think of those? Well, well, you reported it out very well at the start, because these last two days, the testimony has been very important, because the core defense of the president from Republicans in Congress has been, look, the, the phone call was ambiguous. Uh, it's not entirely clear that it was an actual quid pro quo. Yeah, he says, do us a favor, but it happens three lines after. You know, there was all this yeah. parsing Except of that Except everybody transcript. says it was who was so involved with it at the time. Right. But that's the point. So now what you have is four senior officials saying, A, that that was a quid pro B, we were asked to deliver the same message, very explicitly linking the aid to these investigations, both in, essentially into the Bidens and, to, and Hillary Clinton, 2016 and uh, the, the, that company. So all of a sudden, you know, people like Lindsey Graham, who had been saying, if you can show me any evidence of a quid pro quo, other than this phone call, uh, you know, then I'll take it seriously. Well, now in the last two days, you have Gordon Sondland, you have Fiona Hill, you have, you know, uh, Kent all saying it was a quid pro quo. So 
they now have to, they, they're moving to a new defense, which is, of course, it was a quid pro quo. We do that all the time, mm -hmm. but it's not impeachable. So, you know, it's very important. It makes you recognize that they see what has happened in the last two days is really big. It's also really fascinating. If I, I can add one thing, Chris, Please. to read the whole testimony. Uh, Gordon Sondland's story is fascinating. He comes, becomes ambassador to the EU. He's told Ukraine is the is the prize here. We've got to get Ukraine, you know, uh, right, obviously not in the from EU. the West. Right, but but we have to, we, you know, that's why you're involved, Gordon. He gets fired up. He and Volker go to see Trump, and they say, "We've met this new president of Ukraine. Ukraine is crucial. This guy is great. You've got to meet him." And what they confront from Trump is a barrage of conspiracy theories about. Burisma, about Biden, about the 2016 election. And I wonder where Trump got that, that the 2016 election one is so wacko. I wonder whether that was what Vladimir Putin told Trump in Helsinki, mm. that two-hour meeting. Remember, nobody was there. Right. Trump told him, what about the elections? And Putin might have said to him, you know, this is all a Ukrainian plot. They're, they did it, and then they're blaming it on, because it's so wacko. And Sondland and Volker now have to deal with the fact that their whole plan to support Ukraine has been derailed because Trump believes this crazy conspiracy right. theory. And Kent, another one of the officials, says exactly that. He answers the question by saying he was listening to uh, Putin and the head of Hungary, who's another autocrat. Fareed, thank you so much. I'm glad you found your way into this story uh, because it gave me the chance to tap into your great intellect on these issues. Thank you for being with us. Pleasure, Chris. Thank all you. Right. And as you all know, you can catch Fareed's show, GPS, Sunday, 10 a.m. Eastern. So what do you think of this depiction? A pantsless elderly uncle running around a nursing home. That's a description of our president by the author of the upcoming anonymous book, filled with frightening assessments. Is it to be believed? Anthony Scaramucci says, yup. Does he know who the writer might be? Let's ask. The new book by author known only as Anonymous, for now, isn't out for another 11 days, but it's already making waves with its dark depictions inside the Trump White House. Of note, how senior officials often wake up in what is called a full-blown panic over the president's wild tweets. Quote, it's like showing up at the nursing home at daybreak to find your elderly uncle running pantsless across the courtyard and cursing loudly about the cafeteria food as worried attendants try to catch him. You're stunned, amused, and embarrassed all at the same time. Only your uncle probably wouldn't do it every single day. His words aren't broadcast to the world, and he doesn't have to lead the U.S. government once he puts his pants on. Former Trump White House communications director, now Trump critic, Anthony Scaramucci is here. Thank you for joining us. Hey, Chris. So yeah, that's a that's a sobering assessment of what's going on. Do you buy it? Is it hyperbolic? Did you ever see anything like it? Hear anything about it since? Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, some of that is hyperbolic, but some of it's also prima facie. Just go to the 40 minutes of the president uh, clipping today uh, on the South Lawn. I mean, it's not stable. It's not normal. It's not even inside of a bell curve of what people would describe as real mental health. So uh, he's having a hard time putting sentences together. He's repeating himself. He's lost a lot of the sharpness that he had in 15 and 16. 
Um, but if the point's being made in the book, I haven't obviously read the entire book. I've read some of the excerpts, of course. But the, the point being made in the book is that the president cannot manage a process, which includes defining a problem, building a consensus with his team, understanding the roles that his team has, and also embracing the processes of the government, uh, whether it's the National Security Council founded by Dwight Eisenhower mm -hmm. or elements of the Pentagon founded in the late 40s. None of this stuff is, uh, you know, it's not easy for the president. It's not native to him. Uh, and he has this freewheeling, independent swashbuckling that goes on, uh, and it's overconfidence. And so all of that, you know, shows up as a perhaps somebody that's living in a nursing home. I, I hate to say it that way because I don't want to put down people that are living in a nursing home, to be honest. But, but with the president, the big issue, Chris, is that those 16 cabinet-level positions, the 190 sub-departments, are in complete and total disarray. And so I think what the anonymous book is trying to warn people of is you have a system now where the administrative processes right. of the executive branch have completely broken down under President Trump. So you agree with the assessment of the book. I don't agree with it being anonymous. Uh, I'm thinking that this will probably be another primary colors deal where eventually the anonymous winds up being a writer there. It was Joe Klein. Uh, because, you know, if you want to say things like this, own them. Come out and say it. Uh, if there's a risk to you, it's one thing. But this isn't about passing on classified information or important information. You know, this is a political commentary. Let me get to another topic with you about concern right now. Bloomberg. What do you think Bloomberg means to Trump? So I think I think the president would be very intimidated by a guy like uh, Michael Bloomberg. You could just go back to some of the statements that Corey Lewandowski has made about Michael Bloomberg uh, when it didn't seem likely that Mayor Bloomberg would be entering the race. Uh, people asked uh, people like Corey, myself, Dave Bossy, who would be the number one person that President Trump would be the most worried about. And it would be Mike Bloomberg. He's a New Yorker. He could withstand the onslaught of the president's bullying. He's worth probably five to eight times the president's net worth. He could spend a fortune defending himself and getting ads up in all the areas of the country uh, that he needed to get those ads up. And if, if Mike Bloomberg got the nomination, uh, it's very clear to me that he would beat Trump because in those 11 swing states, uh, the level of moderation in Michael Bloomberg, the pro-business nature, but the social progressiveness, that kind of weaving, if you will, uh, would smice the president in those states. So the, pa the path for Michael Bloomberg, though, to win that nomination, you'd have to ask a Democrat about that because it seems like the party has lurched so far to the left. Uh, if Elizabeth Warren has the polling numbers that she has by proposing this socialist agenda, one would have to worry about the path that uh, Mayor Bloomberg would have to get that. But no question, he would be the number one threat. And just quickly, I do agree with you on the anonymous thing. Uh, the good news and the joke this morning, someone said to me, well, it's definitely not you, because, of course, I would put my name on something and speak very declaratively about what is going on. And I really wish more people who agree with anonymous. Chris, I can't tell you the number of people that have left the administration that completely agree with anonymous as to what is going on. And I really wish they would start speaking out so that the American people can hear it from the inside uh, the lack of uh, mm. competence and the disarray that's But when you place. see what's being done to the whistleblower and you see what's being done to veterans and you see what's being done to legitimate officials and even his own people now that they're trying yeah. to say maybe it was Rudy or maybe it was Mulvaney or maybe it was Sondland doing it on their own, some of his defenders are saying now. It makes you a little cautious about coming forward because the guillotine falls quick. 
early stage fascism, Chris. You, 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 yeah, that's what typical people do. They bully people. They frighten them. They intimidate them. We have to be a nation where every individual, including the president, is beneath the law and the system is secure. What's made the country so prosperous and so successful globally is that system. And people have a lot of faith in that system. The president is attacking that system. He's impairing that system. And if he wins again, it's going to really hurt our standing around the world because people will be like, "Okay, wow, uh, here's a lawless guy doing lawless things inside the White House. How could one of the oldest parties, Lincoln's party, and the leadership in Lincoln's party ignore this level of lawlessness. Well, and so, obviously, uh, we're going to keep working on it, and we're going to try to stay in there. You obviously, know? Bloomberg has his reservations about whether or not the current field can beat him. Otherwise, you know, because he's doing something now that he just said a couple of months ago he didn't think he could do. Hey, let me ask you to uh, put your find your transactional finance hat on for a second, as as people should know, but they may not. You know, Anthony's a very sophisticated uh, financial guy. He's got his own company. He's not just Wall Street. He does a lot of high finance. So, what happened with Rudy? his guys, and the money. Here's what we learned. Here's what created the concern uh, for Rudy uh, in terms of financing. Foreign national number one, who we assume is Firtash, the Ukrainian with the Russian um, connections, who's wanted in the U.S. for a criminal investigation, then arranged for two $500,000 wires on or about September 18, 2018 and October 16, 2018, to be sent from overseas accounts to a U.S. corporate bank account controlled by Fruman and another individual. Now, those dates seem to line up with what we understand from the indictment, uh, seems to line up with what we understand about when Rudy got paid. So the concern was, oh, no, did Rudy get mixed up with these, you know, bad guys and he got money from a bad source? But now we learned something else. Uh, Then it's in September 2018, Mr. Guccardo stepped in, paying Mr. Giuliani 250 grand on behalf of fraud guarantee. According to people familiar with the arrangement, Mr. Guccardo paid the second 250 the next month. Fraud Guarantee is a company uh, run by Parnas. So Guccardo was paying Rudy for Parnas, and in exchange, he made a loan to Parnas's company that gave him uh, a- an option on equity, like convertible debt. I mean, th- th- it's a really convoluted transaction. What do you make of it? Well, listen, I, I had the opportunity to meet Charles uh, Guccardo on that trip that think? I went on to Israel. Yeah, Guccardo. Yeah, so I, I liked him. And I think if you talk to journalists that are in and around this case, I think he was a mark in this situation. I think he's an innocent guy. And I think he got attracted to the notion of working with the mayor, who he had an enormous amount of respect for. And I think what happened there is they promised him a piece of that business. Uh, he probably didn't do the due diligence necessary. Uh, but because the mayor was part of the business, uh, he probably thought that that was vetting enough. And so he sent the money in. And of course, that money got bounced off of those two guys into the mayor. And this is a cautionary tale and a number of different things. Uh, if something's too good to be true, don't do it. Number two, if you're giving your money to somebody, you have to do a tremendous amount of due diligence. At Skybridge, we're not a court. Everybody is guilty until Skybridge proves them innocent. And so we run really, really tough background checks on everybody. But in the case of Mayor Giuliani, you and I know him well. I have an enormous amount of respect for him. As do I. But something there tempted him. 
And maybe it was a need for money, Chris. I don't know. But why would he be involved with those guys? And why would he make the money that easily? Uh, when things are that easy and too good to be true, they often are too good to be true. And we're watching that unfold. But I do believe Charles is innocent here based on my observation of him and what I know from the case. We have nothing, we have nothing that indicates differently. We have no reason to believe differently. Um, but obviously, there are two investigations going on of Mr. Giuliani. I still, my other concern is that his biggest risk is going to come from his own, and it's going to be a political attack, not a legal one. Anthony Scaramucci, thank you on a Friday yeah, night. no question. Coming, uh, I know you're running okay, around so Friday. much. The best to you, best to the family, and be well. All right. Hour left before the deadline. Michael Bloomberg officially filed the paperwork to enter the 2020 presidential primary in Alabama. Now, what's his plan? Because he's ignoring those first hot states. He's making a Super Tuesday play. Can he really win if he's not in the other ones? Can he even get on the debate stage? The Wizard of Odds crunches the numbers, explains why he might be getting in and why he may be forced to get out. Next. Former Mayor Michael Bloomberg today officially filed to be on the ballot in Alabama. That means he's skipping the first four primaries. Can you win with that strategy? The bigger question is, why is he even getting in in the first place? Let's bring in the Wizard of Odds, Harry Enten. Good to see you as always. Good job, my friend. Thank you very much, my favorite. Um, Look, we've never heard of this before, except, ironically, a name in the news. Rudy Giuliani did this. Right. He skipped the first few, showed up in Florida, didn't turn out well for him. It didn't turn out well. I should, of course, point out that, obviously, Alabama has this very early deadline in which to file your papers. So I think a real test is whether or not he files in New Hampshire coming up that deadline, I believe, is next week. So that, I think, is the real question. But you're right. You can't skip the first four primaries and hope to win it. There's just no track record for it to work. Right. But obviously, he's seeing something unconventional. So... What do we believe that Mike Bloomberg sees that creates opportunity? Right. I think what he sees is this, and that is he sees that Biden, Sanders and Warren are all having trouble in the battleground states to beat Donald Trump. These were the six closest states in the 2016 election that Donald Trump won. Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida, Arizona, North Carolina. They're all within the margin of error of Donald Trump. And he believes, Michael Bloomberg believes, that electability is what is selling in this primary, and he has good reason to believe that. So what is the one thing that will motivate you to vote in 2020? These are basically the same swing states, Michigan, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. It was an open-ended question, essentially. You could name anything. 21% said to beat Donald Trump. That was number one. Medicare for all, which we've had so much attention to this primary season. My goodness gracious, just 1%. 1%. You and I in a poll together could be 1%. So that's a very small number. Our mothers would hope so. Now, here's my question. What does Bloomberg think that allows him to believe that he can beat the other people in the field. I mean, what's he got that they ain't got? Yeah, I think that what he has is he's going to argue that, of course, he's an independent, right? He's a guy who, you know, was an independent mayor of New York City. He's crossed party lines before, and he's going to sell it along electability, right? He's going to essentially say, hey, I was an independent. I can reach out to these voters who are independents, and the other candidates cannot. Again, these are in these swing states, and we're talking about the swing states because that is where the election is decided, Christopher. But he was low single digits early on when he was thinking about getting in. Yes, but that's the primary, right? That's the primary. He's going to try and pivot to an electability argument. Mm. That's what he's seeing. He is seeing a hole in the electability argument of Biden, Sanders, and Warren among those independent voters who, of course, you got to win those independents usually to win in the general election. And at this point, the three major Democratic candidates are basically breaking even with Trump. And 
Michael Bloomberg's going to make the pitch. Hey, I might be at 2%, but I can sell you on electability. But is he as good as they are? When you look at the metrics of where the strength of a Warren, a Sanders, a Biden, a Buttigieg, what do we both know as New York City guys? Um, Bloomberg was popular enough here that they actually changed the city charter to get him a third term. All right. But he did not do that great with the minority communities here. And that's the stronghold, not just for Biden, but you have to have it as a Democrat to win. You do have to have it as a Democrat to win. And obviously, we've been pointing out this gentleman right here who's running 40 to 50 percent among African-Americans. And they, of course, make up about 20 percent of the Democratic electorate. These two have struggled in the primary so far because they haven't been able to reach out to African-Americans. And that's propelling his bid. People talk about, oh, you know, he's the moderate. He shares the moderate lane with Joe Biden. But the fact is, what Joe Biden's bid is being propelled by is African-Americans. And, you know, I just don't hear that spoken about enough in the press so far. Well, that's why we're doing it right now. I know. This counts. We're part Uh, of the press. Would you put your Chalupa money on Biden or Bloomberg head-to-head Democrat primary? Look, I I would put my pastrami money on this gentleman right here because he knows how to actually build a coalition within a Democratic primary. What was that? Look, we can both get art lessons from Miss Tallarico. You can't even do it either. I didn't even have it on. Oh, please. But the point is, I would bet on Joe Biden in the Democratic primary versus Michael Bloomberg because here's the deal. Joe Biden's been a Democrat for the last 50 years. Michael Bloomberg has been a Democrat for like the last five minutes. So I would bet on the guy who's actually been a Democrat, who can reach out across the Democratic primary electorate, win with African-Americans, whites without a college degree, and at the end of the day can say, hey, I've been taking the fight to Republicans my entire life. He thinks he's exposing weaknesses in this field, and he may hurt Biden, but he also may show the strength of who's already there as a comparison to him. We'll see how it plays. Thank you very much, Wiz. Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. You know, This could be, maybe, the battle of billionaires when you look at the Democratic race on one level. Why? You got Tom Steyer already in the race. Is he singing the classic from the producers? What's he got that I ain't got? What does he make of Bloomberg getting in? Does he think it's for real? Does he think anybody needs it? Next. He loves that song, Steyer. Paperwork's in. Michael Bloomberg officially filed to run in Alabama's Democratic presidential primary. That means he could potentially face off with the likes of, obviously, Senator Elizabeth Warren, uh, a frontrunner who rails against billionaires like Bloomberg, as does Sanders. Let's get some perspective from another billionaire in the race, Tom Steyer. Welcome back to primetime. I saw you laughing, but it's a legit context for the question. When you heard Bloomberg coming in and people like, whoa, he's got a lot of money. He can finance his own campaign. He's got business savvy. Were you like, you know, what's he got that I ain't got? What was the answer to that question for you? (laughs) No, we're very different, Chris. Look, I'm running for president because I believe that corporations have bought our government that we're not going to get any of the policies that the American people so desperately want until we break that corporate stranglehold. And I believe that inequality is defining America right now. And Bloomberg? That's why I said I don't think Michael Bloomberg should run for the Democratic nomination unless he's willing to commit to a wealth tax. And where do you think he is on? I one over a year ago. I think he's against a wealth tax, but I think he should reconsider it. And I don't think he should run unless he's willing to commit to it because he's, got, he's one of the people like me who's been incredibly lucky to be in America, who's profited enormously. We have we need the money. He has a responsibility to give back. And more than that, if he wants to be the nominee of the Democratic Party, he's got to understand that he's got to commit 
to ending this inequality, and he's got to commit to breaking this corporate stranglehold on our government. Otherwise, I don't think he's fit to be the Democratic nominee. He shouldn't run. Fair advantage uh, over you and some others in the field. He's actually had executive experience in government. New York City is one of the biggest economies in the world. Uh, He was in there three times. They changed the charter to get him another term. Is that impressive? Look, I think, don't get me wrong, Chris. I think Mike's an impressive guy. But I think there's a question here about defining what the problem is. And to me, we've got to, this election is about defining what it's going to be to get America going forward again. We have a broken government in Washington, Mm D.C. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? I've been talking about things like term limits of 12 years for every congressperson and senator, a national referendum to take away the monopoly Congress has on passing laws. We're going to have to change and get back to government of, by, and for the people. I want to see if Mike Bloomberg will commit to that and commit to breaking the corporation's ownership of our government. You think he's a threat or you think that there's plenty of potential in the field already that he wouldn't make it through? Look, I think Mike's considering seriously doing this or doing it reflects the fact that this election is wide open, Chris. It's more open than it was three months ago or six months ago. And I think that he's right in thinking that it's going to break late, that people are still weighing their options very much. And so my attitude is, as long as you're willing to commit to being a true Democrat, to actually dealing with inequality, to breaking this corporate stranglehold, then I say, welcome. You think but he's better not, than any of the people at the top right of the to ticket? Democratic nominee. Excuse me, say that again. You think he's better than the people at the top of the polls right now? Look, I think that's a question for you, American people. What's the answer? Think that I were the person if I didn't think I were the best person to tell the truth and to take action on that truth on behalf of the American people, I wouldn't be running. I hear you. No way. So obviously, I think I'm saying something different. I think I'm different and I wouldn't be running if I didn't think I was the best option. When might you change your mind and use your resources and the infrastructure you've been able to put together to help someone who then has a better chance? Well, let me say this, Chris. All of the grassroots organizations that I've started are still going and I'm still supporting them. I'm just not running them. But I want a chance. I expect that my message when I get a chance to deliver it to Americans of this corporate stranglehold, of our need to take climate as priority one, and that as an outsider, I've been taking on and beating these corporations for 10 years. I think that's a message that Americans respond to. And so I'm going to keep going as hard as I can on that, because I think those are the true answers. Now, money is a blessing and it can be a virtue uh, with voters. Hey, Steyer made his own money. He's the real thing. He's no trust fund baby. Bloomberg, same thing. Uh, You point out contrast with Trump that he got a big head start. Um, Then money can also be a problem, especially with how it's used. Your aide has apologized after a report that he offered money for endorsements in Iowa. You guys ran away from it saying it was never authorized. How did that happen? Look, if you start an organization like a campaign and someone does something that's not authorized, he actually resigned, Chris. You should know that that he put that out tonight that we have. Look, we're running an organization I've run, started and built businesses, started and run organizations. Things happen in those organizations. And when they do, you have to assess what happened and deal with it with integrity. That's exactly what happened here.
Well, so in fact, look, something happened that wasn't authorized. We examined it and he resigned. Right. Case closed. You know, the, beyond the campaign, doesn't it kind of make a point that just money and politics, I know they go together, uh, but shouldn't they really be blown apart? You know, isn't it that money just corrupts oh, everything it touches in politics? Look, I'm in favor of public financing of campaigns. But, Chris, I think this campaign is all about ideas and who can be trusted to bring them about. I think that that's the case for every single person, including Michael Bloomberg and definitely including me. I think that Michael Bloomberg has got to explain to Democrats who he is and why he's running. And so do I. And if you, you know, people are not going to respond to money. They're going to respond to something that they believe is true, important, different, and somebody who they believe will tell the truth and take action on that. Mm. And that's exactly the message that I'm bringing to Americans. Take a look at my record, Chris. I've told the truth. I've taken action. Two years ago, people in Washington, D.C. were saying to me, you're crazy to think you can ever impeach this president. But more than 8 million Americans signed on the need to impeach petition. And it turns out, if you listen to what people are saying today, they're repeating almost word for word what we said two years ago. Right. Except back then, you didn't have this Ukraine situation. Although now we're learning that even under the last president, Poroshenko, they may have been an ask for the Bidens. So, Tom Steyer, thank you very much uh, for making the argument for your campaign tonight, dealing with what happened with one of your workers. And uh, always a pleasure to have you on primetime. Chris, thank you for having me. All right. All right. Look, there's no question that the Democratic field is unsettled. I don't know that it's in crisis, but here's what we do know. Here was what is, was and is fairly obvious. What happened in Ukraine? That's why we're seeing not one but two attempts to distract from the obvious ahead of the all important important impeachment hearings next week. So in the argument, we're going to identify, clarify and demystify the efforts afoot. Next All right. Ahead of impeachment hearings next week to avoid what has become all too obvious, a fact pattern of wrongful behavior and arguable abuse of power, GOPers have created two main distractions. Let's call them thing one and thing two. Thing one is the notion that unmasking the whistleblower is the key to everything. The president pushes the idea. Who is the whistleblower? We have to know. Is the whistleblower a spy? And it rolls off the tongues of his allies on Capitol Hill. Frankly, I think the American people have a right to know who this whistleblower is. One, there's a law that makes that not the case, but the intrigue is very intoxicating. But let's look at it with sober eyes and see it for what it is, a non-troversy. Not only is unmasking potentially illegal and or proof of witness intimidation or even obstruction of a congressional investigation, it's irrelevant, like the whistleblower. Why? Practically every tidbit of information we learned about those nine pages from the whistleblower, they've been corroborated or improved upon from the White House call transcripts, statements by officials, testimony and good old fashioned reporting. Don't believe the hype. Thing one Ain't the thing at all. And as for thing two, the argument starts with a flashback. Bolo, be on the lookout for a scapegoat. He's right. More than three times over than we suspected. Giuliani, Chief of Staff Mulvaney, and Ambassador Sondland 
are all being lined up to potentially take the fall. Here's the play. Okay, okay, what happened there is wrong. All right, maybe it's even obvious there was a shakedown. But the president didn't know about it. People were freelancing, going rogue, working their own agenda. And what's the upside to this? While a lot of people have testified in the tech show and, you know, there's a lot of coordinated proof that what was going on in Ukraine was wrong and intentional to get the president what he asked for. No one has testified or shown the president told them directly no aid until I get the Bidens. Everyone so far has heard it from someone. And all of the testimony so far ends with one of the three potential fall guys. The downside, though, let's start with Rudy. On the call, Trump told Ukraine's president specifically to speak to Rudy twice. He's not some accidental player in this. The president knows he's there and connects him to the Biden ask himself. Now, skeptics will say, well, that doesn't tie Trump to withholding the aid. But don't forget, The Washington Post reported that Trump himself gave the green light to suspending aid. And then what Rudy says himself to us, I don't do anything that involves my client without speaking with my client. That's The Washington Post. Giuliani has some questions to answer about his associates and their dealings together. But he did this in Ukraine for the president, by all indications, not for himself. How about EU Ambassador Gordon Sunland? Republicans are banking on this part of his amended testimony. He says it was his presumption. Yeah. So that's not based on, on, on the fact that it was his presumption. That he offered the quid pro quo. But that ignores the rest of Sondland's testimony, where he says he was doing what Rudy told him to. And who was telling Rudy what to do? And why else would Sondland want the Bidens? Right. And why was this newbie EU ambassador, European Union, so heavily involved in Ukraine? They're not part of it. Right. There's some reporting that he forced his way in over John Bolton's objection. But why would Bolton or the secretary of state or any of the other officials involved allow this newbie to just bull his way in if he was without portfolio from the president? Now, something Sondland himself said makes more sense. President Trump has not only honored me with the job of being the U.S. ambassador to the EU, but he's also given me other special assignments, including Ukraine. Ah, once again, he ties it to Trump. The biggest concern for Sondland, who was gifted an ambassadorship for donating a million or so, might be this. Let me just tell you, I, I hardly know the gentleman. Oh, never a good sign. That takes us to acting chief of staff Mick Mulvaney. Two big witnesses pointed directly to him today, saying that he coordinated with Sondland on getting the message to Ukraine's president. No meeting with Trump unless the investigations come. The most damning thing that points to him as the reason this all happened was his own candor. But to be clear, what you just described is a quid pro quo. It is funding will not flow unless the investigation into the into the Democratic server uh, happens as well. We, we do we do that all the time with foreign policy. All right. Now, the key part is the fact that he was forced to walk it back. That's the hint that he ain't driving the bus, but he may get hit by it. 
as should soon become clear to your own eyes and ears next week with the hearings, this was an obvious wrong. It was part of a long and densely populated plot to leverage and access to get political ammo against Biden for this president. The more the Trump defenders fight the obvious, the more powerful it becomes. That's the argument. Next, we've got a loco bolo or a bolo loco. Is our president really about to go celebrate Vladimir Putin, the new invite he says he would love to accept? Bolo, be on the lookout. POTUS confirmed today his interest in going to a parade at the behest of Vladimir Putin. He did, however, note one point of hesitation. So I appreciate the invitation. It is right in the middle of political season. So I'll see if I can do it. But I would love to go if I could. That's his only hesitation. And the Victory Day parade is outwardly about the Soviet Union's triumph in World War II. But make no mistake, it's a celebration of Russian military power. Why? That's the question we keep asking when it comes to this president and Putin. Bolo, thank you for watching. See you. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.